O Father, let us long to worship you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen, and be seated. Open your Bibles this morning, Romans chapter 9 once again, and let me say that I do think that this installment in our series may be one of the most important points of doctrine that we learn in our Christian walk. It's a controversial point, although why, I don't know. The apostles, he's very clear in his language, and he uses a very precise language, (laughs) the Greek. Um, We have it in English, of course, which is also a precise language, and a very great gift of God that we have it. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. I guess I never fixed the, uh, uh, the reading references. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 8 this morning. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Christ is the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. O Father, we pray you unfold to us through our walk with Christ that we indeed are the children according to the promise. And let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Amen. Um, I forgot to give you your homework last week. So I'm going to give it to you this week. It's still, there's still time. All right. You've got to read Genesis chapter 11 through 32. That's 11 chapters. I know how to count. 11 through 32. If you'll read that, and then maybe you want to read the first few chapters of Exodus. Because Paul is going to allude to these sections of Scripture, and he just assumes that we know it. Boy, is he wrong. But go to those sections, renew yourself in them. You know how the Bible goes. It's, it doesn't take long to read a few chapters. But if it took forever, do it anyway. So that's your homework. So verse 6 begins with this thunderbolt. It is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. What on earth could that mean? We have 39 books telling me that they are Israel who are of Israel. Or are they? Read carefully through the covenants. Genesis 11 through 32, and you'll see that Paul can draw from the oldest written scriptures to the newest to give you this same continual doctrine. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now, I've always maintained and I've always taught that the New Testament is the best exegesis of the Old Testament. 
If you don't know what I mean by that, let me tell you. The exegesis of a piece of text, particularly of Scripture, means that it's the preacher's job to go into it and uh, research the intent of it to the original people that were intended to hear it. That way we can draw an apt application that goes according to the Scripture for our time. I can't just read it to you as though it was written to us. We have to go back and see what it meant when it was written to the original hearers, you see. And that's not always a simple task. But it's the job of the preacher. It must be done for us to really glean what God is saying to us. If we we can't know what he's saying to us, if we can't decipher what he's saying to them, because that's who he said it to. He's writing to the Roman Christians of the first century. But in a sense, he's writing to all Christians. But 2,000 years of cultural appropriation has passed, and we have to know who they are to know who we are. Does that sound reasonable? So the New Testament tells us what the Old Testament means, and this is a point of doctrine here. This is a point of exegesis. Paul is telling us we should have known this by reading the Old, but since you don't know it, and since there's all these popular misconceptions about who is Israel, I'm going to reteach you that today in the glorious chapter 9 of the book of Romans. So the New Testament is the best explanation of the Old Testament. And this passage is a quintessential example of that very thing. But I have another rule for you today. The Old Testament is crucial to our understanding of the New. Really, in order to really have a grasp of the gospel... We have to know what was said to the people anciently before Christ came. Because they're the ones that looked for him. They're the ones that predicted him. They're the ones that hoped beyond hope that he'd finally show up. And century after century, millennia after millennia, he finally does, and they missed it. They needed exegesis, friends. So we need the Old Testament. It's crucial to our understanding of the New. And in this passage, the apostle takes on both of those challenges. He's blending the old with the new because he has to demonstrate what he's just heralded, that the purposes of God cannot be frustrated by anything in existence. Okay, a little doctrinal history because I want us to understand this, and I think there are gaps in our understanding about how these things unfolded historically. But let's look at it, and I think it will make sense to you as we go through it. Um, I think it will be very plain. When the apostle wrote this epistle to the Romans, most of the recipients of this letter would not have been Jewish. They would have been pagan Gentile converts to Christianity. In other words, they wouldn't have had much access to the scriptures, the Old Testament, in their lives. Their access to the Old Testament would have been from the time somebody preached Christ to them and they came to Christ and joined the church and heard the saints talk about Christ. And it would have been primarily um, from Jewish believers, like Paul, who knew the Old Testament since their childhood. So pagan Gentile converts would not have had access to the Old Testament. It's, It's also true that the New Testament, friends, had not yet been written. That's why I say what a privilege it is for us to have these 66 books in our hands. They didn't have the old, and even if there were a few of them floating around, it was very expensive to get a copy of it. It wasn't like you could order it online. Karen ordered, we, we uh, bought some books for people from Thursday night. Karen ordered them Friday morning. They came yesterday. Couldn't do that in those days. You had to hire a bunch of monks, right? 
and a leather factory so they could put together pages and write on these things scrupulously. And then they had to be checked over by priests over and over to make sure there wasn't any mistakes because it was a sin to misinterpret the word of God, and they knew that. No, they just didn't have access to what we have access to. So you've got to remember, um, the doctrine these people had came from Paul from this letter. So the New Testament hadn't been written. Think about this. It's the winter of A.D. 56. A.D. 56. Paul is in Corinth where this letter was written. And the only other portions of the New Testament that were already completed were Galatians, which was very early, James, Matthew was one of the earliest of the New Testament, First and Second Thessalonians, and First and Second Corinthians. Um, and as you might have guessed, each of these letters was sent to a certain region, so they only had regional exposure to those letters. Chances are no one in the Roman church had read any of that other stuff. Maybe the Gospel of Matthew, but probably not. Does that make sense? Does that seem reasonable? Galatia was in Asia. Corinth and Thessalonica were in Greece. James wrote to the, to the Hebrews of Jerusalem. Not likely that in a mere few years all these writings would have been copied and circulated. So the New Testament, which was a work in progress, would be for the individual believer non-existent. They were craving this letter. They weren't thinking, oh, I hope he doesn't do a series on this. It'll take it forever. They were craving this letter. And friends, I ought to tell you, it wasn't until the mid-fourth century when they finally brought the bishops together at a time when Christianity was made legal and unfettered by government and actually being helped out to some extent by Constantine, the great Caesar of Rome, who was a Christian. And he called them together at Nicaea, an ancient city in, uh, well, in modern-day Turkey. It's called Izmir today. And they came together, and they began to collate and to decide between them which books should be included and which books should be not. 325 years after Christ was born, or so. Needless to say, there would be very little doctrinal content floating around to consider. In other words, when they went home to their homes, they probably couldn't continue their studies like we can. I mean, we don't, but we could if we wanted to. Uh, apart from what could be gleaned from the oral tradition of the saints, people spoke. They knew things, and they said things to each other. It's what we call an oral tradition, right? And from sparsely circulated portions of the Septuagint, which was the Old Testament translated into Greek, which they may have had a few floating around. But even that would be a largely Jewish phenomenon. Jews would have had the Bible you know, when the wise men came and announced the Christ child being born, it wasn't because they read the Bible, it's because they read the stars. Whenever Paul spoke directly to Gentiles of the Roman world, he spoke in biblical generalities. He didn't get into all these doctrinal distinctives. Friends, when you come to Christ, you don't know a lot about doctrinal distinctives. The points of, 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 of truth that help us grow in Christ. In a sense, doctrine is for the saints. The kernel of the gospel that you must know Jesus in some sense as the Son of God raised from the dead, that's the thing that sparks it off. But you don't come into the faith knowing all the things that we should know. When Paul spoke directly to the Gentiles of the Roman world, he spoke in biblical generalities. I'll give you an example. Remember he went to Athens? I'm going to turn to it. He went to Athens. 
chapter 17, book of Acts. For all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear some new thing. So they wanted to hear new stuff. Paul was on the scene. Guess what? He had a new message for pagans. So here's what it says. Paul stood in the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. He gave them credit for being religious people. You are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. In other words, I know the unknown God. What a great introduction. It's ingenious, in fact. And he said, he's God who made the worlds and everything in it. Since he's Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives life and breath to all things. And he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the earth. In other words, he didn't just make my nation, he made your nation. And he determined the pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So they're getting the idea that this God he's proclaiming is not only a creator, but is their creator. Is not only the God of people, he's the God of nations. If there's anything Greeks knew about, it was nations. They were nation builders. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. And then he quotes their poets. I shouldn't stop there. I should, I should say what he said. I should say what he said about their own poets. Some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. That was a poet, poet named uh, Menander, I believe. Um, Paul knew their poets. He was all things to all men. He came in and he preached Christ. And, they, and some of them thought it was foolishness. And what did he do? He spoke, this is what he word, this is what he said. God who made the world and everything in it since he's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He is the creator God. There are no real particulars of divinity here, other than the creator status of the one true God. He didn't teach them about the Trinity. Nothing was said to them of covenants or law or even Israel. Nothing was said in this. It was a very generic introduction to Christ in the gospel. His only allusion to Christ was to say that God's ordained man has come and that he was identified by being raised from the dead. So he preached the resurrection of Christ to them. And some of them really wanted to hear some more. I would add one more obstacle to the exposure that the early church had to the gospel, and that is that insofar as this epistle is evidence, the Jewish understanding of the Old Testament was lacking. In fact, even though they had Jews present in their congregations to tell them of their traditions, they were lacking, excuse me, in their own understanding of their own scriptures. And Paul is correcting that fault in them with this epistle, with this verse 6. So any information that either Jewish believers or Gentile converts had of the Old Testament would have come from prevailing Jewish notions of the day, and their notions were wrong. You had to know they were wrong. They prepared for the Christ and didn't know him when he came. In fact, weren't very nice to him. We may derive from Paul's teaching in this passage 
that he considers it his profound duty to correct some of these basic misunderstandings. So they didn't get a lot of doctrine. Hence the need for the book of Romans to the Roman world. I'll read you one other section. Um, I'm going to go to the book of Acts again, chapter 8. And we read this. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch. You know the story, right? A man of great authority under Candace, that's Kandake, the queen. That's a title, not a name. She was queen of the Ethiopians who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. He came to Jerusalem to worship. He knew there was something going on with these Jews. And he was uh, returning and sitting in his chariot, he's reading Isaiah the prophet. Can you imagine now, if he had the book of Romans, he would have been reading it. But he didn't. He didn't have Matthew. He didn't have Mark, Luke, or John. He didn't have Revelation. He didn't have any of this. And so he's sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah, of all things. And the Spirit says to Philip, so here's, here's the eunuch in his chariot, just sitting back, imagine the horses maybe grazing or something. Philip's over here somewhere. And he says, Philip, go over there and talk to that guy because I want you to give him the gospel so he can spread it throughout Ethiopia when he goes home. So the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So, so Philip ran and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said to him, do you understand what you're reading? It was a natural assumption that he didn't. Friends, the Jews didn't even understand it. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scriptures which he read from was this. Okay, this is what Philip preached from. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. An obvious reference to Jesus, but not to him. It had to be exegeted. And so the eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? That's a crucial question. Isaiah is not presenting himself as the Messiah. Isaiah was 750 years before that happened. So he's prophesying the coming of Christ. And Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. So he explained to him, no, it's, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about Christ. And by the way, centuries have passed, and the man he's talking about has come, and he's come for you, and he sent me to you. So the eunuch goes and believes. He doesn't have much information here. He knows a, a, a Savior came, anciently prophesied, fulfilled the prophecy, came from God, and died for his people. That much he knows, as far as we know. Philip could have told him any number of other things. We don't know how long they talked. But Luke is only giving us this much. Well, as they went down the road, he must have told them some things because the eunuch said, there's some water. Why don't you baptize me? And he said, well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. That's, that's the uh, criteria for being baptized. 
What hinders me from being baptized? Only unbelief would hinder you. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip up and took him away. Now, I did the, I, I did the scale on the map one time. He took him away 20 to 30 miles away. And so he didn't have to run this time to catch up. The Spirit just transported him. Now, I throw all that in there to show you people were considered Christians who really had very little doctrinal understanding. I mean, he had one section of Isaiah. He's reading it. He doesn't know what it means. We know that most of the Jews of the time only had a partial understanding of what these things meant because Paul wouldn't have written this verse had they known much. Lloyd-Jones wrote this. The problem was that the Jews at the time of our Lord and the time of the apostles were making the same fatal assumption that they had made right through the Old Testament. They were assuming that the mere fact that they were Jews and descendants of Abraham saved them in and of itself. That is an untruth. The Jews believed it. They would have taught it. And the Jewish Christians would have said they were called Judaizers because they believed you had to be uh, uh, circumcised. That made you a spiritual son of Abraham. And then you could come to Jesus. They misunderstood this. You understand me? So Paul had to write this letter to correct a couple of these things. And this is a huge thing. So I'm here today to say that even though the apostle labors over the various doctrinal subjects of the epistle, and we've labored over them, he's of the opinion that the people of God, the Jews, and the people of God, the Christians, are operating under a misapplication of one of the most basic concepts in the whole of Scripture. And that is, who are the people of God? Who are the people of God, and how shall he be worshipped? Those are essential pieces of doctrine for us to understand as we grow in Christ. The apostle is disabusing these Romans, and hopefully us, of a grave misunderstanding. And I say today, it affects the whole of the church today. And if that misunderstanding is not explained and corrected, it will inhibit the saints from seeing the connection between the Old and New Testaments and between Israel and the church. This is where the folly of dispensationalism is exposed. If you don't know what dispensationalism is, come to the after-church meeting today with Dr. Roach, and you will be apprised of it. And so he has his task before him, Paul. He's taken up pen and ink to declare the purposes of God from beginning to end and show that nothing can frustrate them. And to demonstrate from Scripture that the purposes of God cannot be thwarted by any force in heaven or earth, and so he brings us all to this majestic conclusion that we know that all things work together for good. For who? National Israel? No. To those who love God, whether they be of national Israel or of the Gentile world. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And it's the, it's the apostle's purpose here to show that this premise has been demonstrably true since the beginning. In other words, it hasn't changed when Jesus came. We were always saved by faith 
only the elect were always saved. God did not abandon his covenant people of old. And that's Paul's whole premise for writing Romans chapter 9. To link the Old Testament with the New. And so he anticipates an objection. That's what Paul does. He anticipates an objection. Remember we were going through it and he said, now wait a minute now, where where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Oh, shall we sin that grace may abound? He anticipates that someone's thinking that and so he writes it in there and says certainly not and he tells you why. It's the wrong question to ask. The question to ask is how shall we who are dead to sin live it in any longer? That's the question to ask, right? So he does this thing. He anticipates the objection to the continuity of God's purposes in history due to the fact that the Jews seem to be left out of this great Christian revival that's going on in Rome. And so he writes this, It is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. In other words, God didn't abandon the real Israel. So a first note from this passage would be that the word Israel comes with two different meanings in the same sentence. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. There's national Israel. Everyone knew that. There's the natural Israeli bloodline from Abraham. That's Israel, right? And then there's this other Israel. There's spiritual Israel. There's the Israel of promise. There's the Israel of covenant. Friends, there is what Paul calls the Israel of God. And that's what you are. Now, in order for him to make this proclamation, it could not have come about... um, suddenly with the advent of Christ. It couldn't be something that new. It had to be traced throughout God's covenant history of his people, whom he lovingly refers to here and elsewhere as his elect. And he includes this connection. Elect Gentiles as well as elect Jews. In doing so, he rightly anticipates what we might call the Jewish objection to the gospel. You have to know the Jews rejected the gospel. I mean, obviously there were a lot of Jews that didn't, The church in Jerusalem, the first church, was filled with probably only Jews. All of the disciples were Jewish early on, as we know. The apostles were called out of, you know, uh, Israeli culture. They were all Jewish. But you see, the popular Jewish conception of themselves as the covenant people of God throughout history is based on a flawed reading of the Scripture. And Paul's demonstrating that. That's what this whole chapter is about. Rather than a conclusion deduced from the prophets that Jesus is the Christ sent from God for their redemption, they relied on this prevailing notion that they were naturally, by birthright, sons of God. They didn't need the gospel. When the, when the Baptist came out and said, repent, they would said, do you not know who we are? We don't do the repenting. We're sons of Abraham. They believed they were saved because they were promised salvation as adjunct recipients of grace just for being born Hebrew. And thus circumcision was the distinct sign of membership. Paul's going to take this on piece by piece and dismantle this falsehood and show us that the gospel is something bigger than just that. So Paul came to this crossroads in his treatise to the church. He declares that the purposes of God cannot be frustrated by any force in the universe. Remember this? In all things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Friends, from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. 
I'm going to tell you something that people don't say bluntly, but I'm going to say it bluntly. I'm going to do like a politician. Now, let me be clear. And then they go and say something not clear, but I'm going to be clear. I'm going to be clear. It's a misnomer today to say that Jews worship and recognize the same God that we do. I want you to know they don't. And only some of the Jews of old worship God rightly. We know that David did. We know that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did. They all had their faults, which were not hidden from us, but they worshipped and recognized the one true God. Not all of them did. To say the Jews worship the same God we do is to say you can come to God without Christ. They believe in a God who has no son, and they're actually offended that you would say he has a son. Remember that. And that offends Muslims as well. They think it's profane that we have a God that has a son. I'm letting that settle in a bit. Jews and Christians do not worship the same God. The elect among Jews and Christians worship the same God. Is that able to be understood? We can grasp that, right? And so the great doctrinal declaration that the purposes of God will be fulfilled from beginning to end will be accomplished. God hasn't left any of the elect behind. And then as we saw last week, the apostle segues into this maudlin lament over his lost countrymen. But even in this sad interlude of seeing his own people, his own unregenerate self, even himself he saw as being left behind had he not been affronted by Christ on the road. They miss the advent of Christ. He refines the prevailing conception of the Jews by referring to them as my countrymen according to the flesh. We all have those. I have brethren in the flesh that are not my brethren in the spirit. You are closer to me and to one another than you are some of your natural relatives, your brethren according to the flesh. It's the same with Israel. And so he begins this theodicy. Remember that word from last week, the theodicy? I would have used the word apology, but apology doesn't mean what it used to mean. Apology means I'm sorry. In those days it meant a defense of. Always be ready to give an apologia for the faith that is in you, to give an apology for the faith that is in you. That's the word. We use it the exact opposite of how it's meant to be. An apology is a defense. Origen wrote his great apologia, a defense of the gospel, right? So I can't use apology because everyone will think, wow, Dan won't stick up for the gospel. He's apologizing for it. So I'm going to use the word theodicy by making the great distinction and this great correction in our thinking. So the nat natural Israel, that is the biological sons of Abraham, are not all the recipients of the covenant promises of God. And so we read this, nor are they all children because they're of the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called, he said in verse 7. This is why you have to read Genesis when you go home. Nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham. Friends, the seed of Abraham are the true sons of God. But there's more than one seed. He's making the clear Old Testament point that Abraham had two sons. Now you've got to know this, right? Abraham had Ishmael from Hagar, the Egyptian bondwoman, right? That's because they got tired of waiting for God. They, they thought he made a promise, but he's faithful, but maybe we should be doing more. We do this all the time. We don't wait. We just start in, and of course we mess it up, which they did. And they had Isaac. Do you know... I believe Abraham at the time was 86 when he had, when he had 
he already had Ishmael, I should say, when he was 86, when he was 99. He got the promise about Isaac, so when he was 100, he got Isaac. Isaac was 14 years, I mean, Ishmael was 14 years old when Isaac was born. He had a 14-year-old son. So when you go back and you're reading Genesis, when you get to wherever it says his age, circle it in your Bible. He's 86 here. He's 90 here. He's 99 here. Sarah's 90 here. It'll really help you see the progression. All right? Now, he's foresh- Paul has foreshadowed this in the epistle already. He said things like this from chapter 2. He's not a Jew who's one outwardly, nor is, it, is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew who is one in- inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter. So he said that in chapter 2. He's foreshadowing this great explanation in, in Romans chapter 9. In chapter 4, Paul alludes again to faith as genuine circumcision. Abraham becomes his example of this being the father of the faithful, and he's at the same time the father of biological Israel and of spiritual Israel. So Abraham had to believe God unto righteousness just like we all do. Now, just so we don't come to the conclusion that this is a purely New Testament concept, Paul quotes from Genesis. He says, Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's the quintessential gospel. That's the gospel in a nutshell. We believe God, and we're imputed righteousness before him. He, he puts his righteousness on us. Even though we're still sinners, he declares us righteous. That's what impute means, right? So there's this marvelous testimony to this fact from Galatians. Maybe you remember it. Galatians chapter 3. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. The scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. In you, all the nations shall be blessed. Even he believed and was saved. He was saved before he was circumcised, just as we believe we're saved before we're baptized. None of us would claim that baptism saved us, though, like the Jews of old, there are many Christian sects that say this very thing to this day. And so we read, we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Paul says, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. He was circumcised after he believed. Circumcision didn't bring about salvation for him. He goes on to embellish the point. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith. He could have said a symbol of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Why all this talk of circumcision and uncircumcision? Because we're exegeting. We're talking about what it meant to them. Those were important factors to them. And so Paul's only offering to the Roman church the precepts of the gospel of Christ. For even Jesus was no stranger to this debate. Maybe you remember this. How many times did Jesus' doctrine insult his natural brethren? In fact, I was going to do a whole thing on this. It would have taken too long, but all I'm pretty sure that all, but almost all, of the people who Jesus said, I have not seen such great faith even in Israel. The people he said that to were always not Israel, not of Israel. 
And to to Israelites, he was always rebuking. No wonder they didn't like him. He was setting their doctrine straight. And so we read this from Matthew, or rather from Luke. I tell you truly, many, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. No rain, friends. And there was a great famine throughout the land. There were many widows in Israel, and to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. In other words, when all these widows needed a visitation from the prophet, they didn't get one in Israel. The widow of Lebanon got a visit from Elijah. That's an insult to them. He didn't care. He said, and many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and to none of them was none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So he's saying God blessed needy people in Lebanon. He blessed needy people in Syria, but the famine remained in Israel. These words were spoken in his hometown of Nazareth. And what do you think the next verse says? Jesus spoke these things, which we all know are true from the Old Testament, right? And so we read, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Jesus preached to them the truth from their own scriptures, and they were filled with wrath. Why? Because they believed they were all Israel who are of Israel. That's why. Why do you suppose Jews killed Jesus? It was because their understanding of their own covenant promises, their own doctrine was challenged. The thing they relied on all their lives was emphatically and competently deconstructed by a man with a great following at the time and no formal training. His natural pedigree of the son of the carpenter of Nazareth was like a cloak and hood that hid him and disguised him. They couldn't see why they should listen to this person who's correcting their doctrine. That's the danger of false doctrine, friends. It leaves us fighting against God. It left Saul of Tarsus fighting against God and the saints. It empowers us to proclaim heresy where there is truth and truth where there is heresy. And this apostle and every preacher of our day are blessed and burdened with the self-same task. And I hope that we and he and me (laughs) are up to the challenge of unraveling this. Isaiah said there'll come a time when they call evil good and good evil. Well, that was one of those times, all right? Paul was killing all the Christians thinking they were heretics, and they weren't heretics. They killed Christ because he corrected their view of themselves. So a corrupt understanding of the true identity of the Israel of God changes our whole view of everything. Our view of prophecy, our application, our understanding of New Testament privilege and gospel benefits. And the proof of this is when the Jews of old were corrected with regard to the doctrine of their true identity, identity, they killed the messenger. And the messenger was their savior. And so Jesus said to them elsewhere, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. He said, why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my words. You ever turn on a news station where you know everything they say is going to bother you? (laughs) That's what this was like. You can't understand me because you won't listen to my words. So what did he say? Your true father is the devil. Now, Jude didn't want to hear that, as you know. 
I think you know the end of the story. John the Baptist was the first one to say, bear fruits worthy of repentance. But before they could say, why should we repent? We're the sons of Abraham. He said, do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, God's able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones, which he did. The whole of the gospel message begins with this correction that God pro- God's promises are to those of the faith of Abraham, not the bloodline of Abraham. And so God's purposes were not frustrated. Paul can follow through and say, well, more than conquerors, we know that all things work together for good. They were accomplished. God's plan was not foiled. It was fulfilled. His people were not left behind. They were blessed and received and informed and taught and sanctified. John wrote at the very beginning of his gospel that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. His own did not receive him, but as many as did receive them, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And though there's this false conception of Jewishness, Paul does not dismiss, dismiss rather, the privilege of being a Jew. Friends, if you're born in a, a Christian family, that is a real privilege. And I hope you take the wisdom of your parents, because it's a great privilege that you even have it. And the same being Jewish, they grew up with the scriptures in their house. Paul said that to Timothy, your mother Lois, your grandmother Eunice, since you were a young child, you knew the word of God. So we might remember Paul's former teaching in this epistle where he said, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what's the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because they were committed the oracles of God, which is the written word. It was a great advantage. It didn't get you saved just to be a Jew, but it was an advantage. So he laments over his lost countrymen. He points out their great advantages and their ancient covenant history. And so he says, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. A great privilege to have been a Jew. And so he exposes that his... Teaching is a continuous process of God's unfolding purposes for the elect all throughout history. They begin substantially with Abraham, but you can trace them back to Adam and Noah. But here a decided turn takes place, and God calls out his prophet to found a new nation. And so he says this, another lengthy section from Deuteronomy. To Israel the Lord said, For you are a holy people. If if you're careful in your reading, you'll find out God said this audibly to all of Israel. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. A special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people for you were the least of all peoples. But the Lord loves you. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. For those of you who don't read poetry, that means forever. With those who, what? Love him. He's talking only to Jews, but he only keeps covenant mercy with those who love him. 
He's saying it right here in the initial covenant. You hearing this? It's to those who love God and keep his commandments, he said. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He's only talking to the Israelites. Now, I prepare an illustration. So we can, because I think it, as Paul anticipates, what about the Jews? We're going to ask, what about the Jews? I'm anticipating, why did he bother with all this? Why did he give us Israel? Well, God has a long-term plan, and I can't explain why that is to you, but I have an idea why he did it this way, considering that he was going to leave history to unfold over many or several millennia. And so here's my illustration. It begins with a farmer. And let's put him in New England. All right, this is a New England farmer. And it's in New England because the growing season here is limited. The farmer would like to increase his crops, and so he must take some very specific steps to do that. In order for his tomato plants to grow strong and hardy while the earth is still cold and crusty, he has to do something with those vines, so he puts them in a hothouse. Ken used to give the hothouse example. And they'll be sheltered in the hot, hot house from the elements outside of the world that could corrupt their growth and their strength and their purity. They will be safe from all the pests and diseases of society as long as they're in the hot house. Are you starting to catch on? <laughs> he also sent caretakers into the hot house. They would cultivate and feed the young plants, and so the planters and the pruders, pruners and the weeders and the cultivators lived among the plants to ensure their growth and strength to endure the elements sometime in the future. And only when the farmer saw fit to transplant them, when they've become strong and that when their roots have gone deep into the soil, when it's certain that they'll bear much fruit, only then does the farmer take them out into the world to face the elements. The farmer is God. The hothouse is Israel. The pruners and planters are the prophets, and the field is the world. And friends, the nourishment of the plants is the gospel. I have one other illustration for you, and I almost didn't want to use this. Maybe I won't tell you why I didn't want to use it. It's an illustration of why Christ was kept in among the most reclusive tribes in all the earth. They only stayed with themselves. They married within themselves. The word of God was for them, the rites, the rituals, the Passovers, all that was just for them. Why did he do that? So I have a, another example. Let's call this a parable. It's the story of the infant King James, King James of Scotland and England. He was the only surviving male heir between both dynasties. Elizabeth was the Tudor dynasty in England, and Mary, Queen of Scots, was the Stuart dynasty in Scotland. And neither of them had a male heir. In fact, John Knox, the great student of Calvin, came back, founded the Presbyterian Church, and he wrote his great work, The Last Blast of the Trumpet of the, of the Monstrous Regiment of Women. In other words, too many women run in the world. John Knox didn't like that. The Monstrous Regiment of Women. We got Mary over here. We got Elizabeth over here. There's no males in sight. Elizabeth didn't marry Mary was corrupt and finally just had a child from Henry who died. And so they have this baby, and he's the true heir of both kingdoms. It's a pretty awesome story, isn't it? He was the only surviving male heir between the Tudor dynasty of England and the royal Scottish cousins, the Stuarts. 
By the way, Queen Elizabeth loved this Scottish son. She was all for, even though it wasn't her son, she was all for him succeeding her. And so he would become James VI of Scotland and James I of England at the same time. The reigning Protestant faction of Scotland took careful measures to ensure that the infant king grew to strong and able adulthood. So they took a number of extraordinary measures. Remember now, this is a baby, months old. He's the king, though. They took measures to secure his safety from any possible competitor to the throne, and there were many. It was a, dare I say it, Game of Thrones. The first decade of James's life was one of the most bitter and bloody periods of Scottish history. There were several ancient competitors to the throne. You beginning to catch on? And so the infant James was sheltered away in Stirling Castle. Stirling Castle was outside of Edinburgh. It was a fortress castle. On one side had a sheer rock face. You could only attack from the front, and it was easily defensible. A few archers there could take on an army. And so they kept him in Stirling Castle. <laughs> and only those who pledged allegiance to James were allowed to enter the castle, and no one bearing weapons or armor. Can you imagine fighting men of Scotland coming in and bowing the knee to a one-month-old baby and giving their allegiance to him? This is what they did because he was the rightful king, and they knew it. So they protected him for all that time. There would be only two or three at a time allowed to visit him. And they would be supervised visits. And so he would be sheltered and protected there. By the way, his first regent, which is his first protector, was his grandfather. So he had no reason to not want him to be king. They were very careful. He would be nursed and educated and guarded day and night. He would grow to be a great king. Among other accomplishments, he would sanction the translation of the Bible that we refer to today as the King James Version. Now, this take, when, when, I, when I give an illustration, when anyone gives an illustration, take it for what it is. This isn't a commentary on James's whole time in office. Okay, He did some things and he did some other things, if you know what I mean. So it's not talking about that. I'm, I'm just using this little slice of his life to show you that like the infant king of Scotland, the promised Messiah of Israel was long in coming. And when he finally arrived and was announced, there were many competitors emerging for his throne, right? He was announced who? By who? Wise men, by angels, by John the Baptist. He was announced. And so he too was cloistered away to a safe, faraway land until his enemies had died or been defeated. Remember they went to Egypt? And the angel came and said, Herod has died. You can come back. (laughs) Part of his nurture and protection was the sheer obscurity of Israel, a small and insignificant region of a great empire. It was his Israelite heritage that protected him and defined him. He was the rightful heir. And at the time of his installment, he was announced. That's what God did with Israel. He says it, Paul says it much more simply to the Galatians, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray you will unfold the truths of your scriptures for beginning to end and let us glory in the knowledge of it, Lord. Let us recognize the privilege we have that the apostle would take the time and bear the burden and even give his life to bring these truths to us, O Lord. And, it co- and if it costs us our lives, O oh Lord, give us the courage and faith to endure it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.